0: A senior United Nations official has resigned because of the Israeli assault on Gaza. In his resignation, he said, the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in the horrific assault against the people of Gaza. We need a new system. We need a new society Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Rania Khalek. Rania is a journalist based in the Middle East. She hosts the show Dispatches. She also co-hosts the Freedom Side Live, both of which you can find at Breakthrough News' YouTube page. You can also find her prodigious reporting on social media at Rania Khalek. Rania, welcome to The Socialist Program.
1: Brian, it's so good to be on with you.
0: I know you are talking to us from the Middle East. Of course, the eyes of the entire world, but especially the eyes of people living in Lebanon, living in Syria, living in Egypt, in Iraq, in Iran, all over the Middle East, are fixated on the horrific assault being waged by the Israeli government, paid for by the United States against the people of Gaza. Yesterday, again, a major apartment building in a refugee camp destroyed by Israeli bombs or missiles. The image, in fact, or the footage of this atrocity is so graphic, so horrific, so disturbing that we can't actually use it. It's too much. The whole world thinks this is too much. And yet, you have the Biden administration insisting, along with the Netanyahu government, that this is not the time for a ceasefire. Let's just get the perspective of people living where you are living in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, so I'm coming to you, Brian, from Beirut, Lebanon and people here are just watching in horror and completely devastated, 200 miles away from me, there's a genocide being carried out by the Israelis, like you said, with the absolute complicity and you know, actually enthusiasm, I would say, of American and European officials who are arming the Israelis, giving them cover, the entire corporate media apparatus, running cover for genocide. I just wanna you know, remind people, who I'm sure are following all of this as well, but over 420 Palestinian children are being killed by the Israelis every single day right now. That is according to UNICEF. The Israelis, as we've all seen, are saying it out loud. You see one Israeli official after another going on television. And saying they are intentionally targeting civilians, saying that there are no such things as civilians in Gaza, calling Palestinians human beasts. That was said by the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant. You have Netanyahu, who announced his ground invasion a few days ago, and he referred to a Bible verse, a genocidal Bible verse, to talk about the Palestinian enemy and basically inciting Israeli soldiers to kill infants and women and slaughter their, you know, sheep, whatever Bible verse he was quoting. I mean, this is all on video. And at some point, I would hope would be used as evidence to try these people for committing the act of genocide, but they are crushing and destroying Gaza right now. And I say that just to note, you know, that is what the people of Lebanon are watching on their TV screens. I know in in the US, the dominant media outlets are, are CNN and, MSNBC and Fox News, which are covering this very differently, but all of the media outlets here, whether it's, you know, there's so many satellite television outlets for people to watch, are covering the carnage in Gaza and the horrors of Gaza. And, you know, it's hard to focus on Lebanon when we look at what's taking place in Gaza, but a lot of that is also meant to be psychological warfare for the Lebanese population, because what you have is the Israelis, officials who are first talking about crushing Gaza and there's no civilians there, and cheering for bombing refugee camps and hospitals, and killing journalists, and targeting the families of doctors. I mean, all of the horrific things that they're doing. They're then saying things like, Lebanon is next. We're coming for Lebanon next. We're coming for Iran next. You know, we're going to wipe Lebanon off the map. We're going to take Lebanon back to the Stone Age. So the Lebanese population is pretty routinely used to hearing that kind of language. But with the images of Gaza, people are quite frightened here. So it's a mix of devastation and actual terror in terms of, well, what does that mean Israel's gonna do to Lebanon if this war escalates? And so I wanna talk about what's been happening in Lebanon. There has been a war going on in Lebanon at the border for the last 24 days. Hezbollah and Israel have been exchanging fire but, you know, what's interesting about this exchange of fire, which hasn't received that much attention because it doesn't look like Gaza, is it's largely up to Hezbollah to make the rules. And so far, about 50 Hezbollah fighters have been killed. Every time a fighter is killed, you know, they announce the name, the age, they show you a photo. And a lot of these fighters have been killed firing precision-guided rockets at Israeli equipment on the border, particularly surveillance equipment. And, the, and Hezbollah has been releasing images of that because it's a part of a strategy on their part to take out basically what's in the north of Israel, what's considered Israel internationally, but people here called occupied Palestine, you know to kind of let the Israelis know to send a message to the Israelis that if you continue to escalate in Gaza, if you continue to escalate here, we have plans. basically like we, we have plans to come for you. And I just want to also note you know Amnesty International recently released a report accusing the Israelis of a war crime by dropping white phosphorus on southern Lebanon, they've created massive fires and basically burned down a large portion of the bushes there as a result. And that's, you know, probably because they see those bushes as hiding Hezbollah positions. They also have targeted journalists. They killed a journalist several weeks ago, a Reuters correspondent called Isam Abdullah, that Reporters Without Borders is saying was done deliberately and likely was because, you know, the Israelis knew these were journalists and where they were, they had been reporting from this position All day, they injured several others. And uh, of course, you know, Reuters, in its statement after its own employee, its own journalist was killed, didn't even name who killed him. And that was quite offensive. But Hezbollah did reference Isam Abdullah the next day in an operation against the Israelis, like in his honor. But just to note, you know, yesterday, Israel also killed a 16-year-old boy in South Lebanon who was riding his motorcycle home. They killed him with a drone. So if Israel has demonstrated anything the last three weeks, it's that it excels at killing children. But all that's to say, yes, the Israelis have, of course, killed some civilians, targeted a journalist, killed this child yesterday. But for the most part, if you look at how the Israelis used to deal with Lebanon versus today, Hezbollah has demonstrated that it has a very real deterrent capacity. The last time Hezbollah and Israel had a war. Lebanon and Israel had a war was 2006. And while Israel, of course, killed over a thousand civilians, Hezbollah killed over a hundred Israeli soldiers, which, you know, back then was considered a very big deal because it's not common that that many Israeli soldiers are killed. And Israel failed miserably to try and invade southern Lebanon. They actually performed disastrously because they're known for being terrible at on-the-ground combat. All they can do is rely on air power. So since 2006, there have been rules of engagement, where Israel is very well aware that Hezbollah has the capacity to do damage to Israel, and it's only gained in that capacity since then, especially after fighting in Syria and you know getting stronger. It has like over a hundred thousand people in its army prepared to fight. It has far advanced weapons than it did in two thousand six. So there's basically a new equation that Hezbollah has installed at the border, and that is a tit for tat equation, where if Israel hits and escalates, if Israel hits civilians, Hezbollah can hit civilian infrastructure. If Israel hits the airport, Hezbollah can hit the airport in Tel Aviv. So because of Israel understanding that it's not dealing, it's still dealing with a a force that's not as strong as it, or doesn't have as advanced weapons as it, it is dealing with a very strong force that can do damage. So as a result, we have seen the Israelis refrain for 24 days to do what they would have done if this was 17 years ago. And I'll even say, you know, Hezbollah is really in charge of this new equation. Right now, people are waiting in anticipation for Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, to give a speech on Friday where he is expected to reintroduce this formula that I'm talking about. No one really, I mean, exactly knows what he's going to say, but it's expected that he'll reiterate this formula of tit for tat. You hit us, we can hit you right back. And so as a result of this, for the last 24 days, it's not just Hezbollah operating at the border. There's a new equation where even Palestinian factions can fire at Israel from South Lebanon, and it doesn't change the equation, whereas in the past it would have. Hezbollah can fire, and it doesn't change the equation. So it basically, like I said, whatever Israel bombs, Hezbollah and Israel has said this repeatedly in speeches over the years, whatever you bomb, we will bomb back. And so, you know, there's been all these embassy warnings from the U.S. every, like, few days, I'll get like an embassy warning. You need to leave Lebanon immediately, right? There's been all these warnings from the Europeans and everybody here has been waiting for this war to escalate, to escalate because of all these embassy warnings. And most importantly, they've been waiting for Israel to bomb the airport. Every single time Israel has escalated with Lebanon in the past, one of the first things they do is they bomb the airport. That's what they did in 2006. Right away, they bombed the airport. Well, everybody's waiting. It's been 24 days of fighting, and Israel still hasn't bombed the airport. That alone is huge because they know if they bomb our airport, their airport will be hit back. I mean, that's not to mean they won't do it, but Israel has something new to take into account. And I'll also mention Israel has bombed the airports in Syria several times in both Damascus and Aleppo. And that's because Syria doesn't have the deterrent capacity of Hezbollah that Lebanon has. You know, these rules of engagement are important because this is the first time where there is something that looks like an army in this region that Israel is actually hesitant to take on. They're very hesitant to open up a northern front with Hezbollah. And so as a result, the war that's taking place in South Lebanon has been contained to between 5 to 15 kilometers of each border. And mostly, you know, despite the fact that a few times Israel has targeted journalists, has targeted civilians, and, and of course used white phosphorus, It has mostly been a tit-for-tat against military installations, which is not what you see happening in Gaza. And I would say, you know, I think the Israelis here are really trying to shock and awe the surrounding, you know, population that isn't in Gaza with what they're doing there. And, you know, they're trying to instill this fear in the Lebanese, in the Syrians, in the Iranians. But I think that they're dealing with a very different region today that while, of course, is not as strong as Israel militarily, does have the capacity to hit back. I mean, obviously, Israel has superior weapons and can do more damage. But that said, you have Hezbollah in South Lebanon. Like I said, tit for tat, they can do a lot of damage to Israel. And then you have Iran, which has a lot of partners across the region that, as we see, are hitting at U.S. positions in northern Iraq, are hitting at U.S. positions in Syria where the Americans are present, unwelcome by the government there. And then you have the Houthis, also, you know, a partner of Iran, hitting. So this is the axis of resistance that Iran and its partners across the region have been basically creating and strengthening over the past, you know, decade. And it got stronger because of the U.S. regime change attempt in Syria. And now this axis of resistance, it does not want a war with Israel to escalate. It does not want a war with the U.S. However, watching a genocide take place in Gaza and watching their Hamas partner and other partners like Islamic Jihad and other various Palestinian factions that are involved in the fighting, watching them, you know, take hits from the Israelis, at some point, you know, they might not have a choice but to get involved. And so that's the big fear is that this could snowball into a regional war that really nobody wants, but everybody's going up the escalation ladder. So it's just kind of a waiting game. And just about Lebanese feelings on the ground, you know, I want to note there was a survey that was done, a public opinion survey by Information International, the company that did it. And the results were that 76% of the Lebanese supported what Hamas did on October 7th, while 17% were neutral and 8% were opposed. And, you know, of course, you know, 93% of Shias and Druze, well, Druze was interesting there, were in support, 88% of Sunnis, and interestingly enough, 50% of Christians. And for those who know Lebanon, it's a very polarized country largely polarized by sect. And I have friends from, you know, different ideological perspectives and different sects. And mostly everybody is horrified by what they're seeing Israel do. And their hearts are with Palestine. On the issue of Hezbollah's involvement, you know, it's a little bit, you know, more shaky. Most people, of course, don't want a war here. So about 48% are opposed, according to this survey, of Hezbollah's participation in this war. And then 27% are in favor. But that's also because one last thing I'll mention about Lebanon is that, you know, Lebanon is in a very weak position right now as a country. Its state is very weak. It's been dealing with a horrible economic collapse for the last few years. So as a result, like we don't have electricity all day. At some point while we're speaking, I'm sure my lights will go out and the generator will come on. And people are, you know, their purchasing power has gone down. You know, obviously there's like hyperinflation here. It's really difficult for those who are still being paid in local currency. And a lot of this also, what's left out of that conversation is a lot of that economic collapse is also due to the Americans and Europeans, the fact that we live in a sanctioned region where our neighbor next door, Syria, is under the Caesar sanctions, making it difficult for Lebanon to do business with its neighbor or rely on its neighbor to import products because it might open Lebanon up to a secondary sanctions. And you know, the fact that the US sanctions Lebanon as well in various ways because of the presence of Hezbollah. And the fact that Lebanon is in ex- extreme debt as well and just has this very corrupt sectarian system that was put in place you know, by the French, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, let me jump in. I wanna yeah, help frame the discussion. And I, I wanna thank you because you're giving the perspective from the Middle East, from Lebanon in particular, And also an assessment of the military situation. And I think it's very important for people who are mainly getting their, let's say, people living in the United States who are not familiar with the politics of the Middle East, only getting their news mainly from the mainstream media. The entire presentation of this war, and also the presentation about Lebanon and about Hezbollah, is that there are two sides. One side is good. And the other side is evil. And the evil side are terrorists. So Hamas is a terrorist organization. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. They are terrorist organizations because the US government has designated them as terrorist organizations. So, for instance, during the 2006 war, when the Israeli government, the Israeli defense forces, the Israeli military, dropped cluster bombs all over Lebanon, hundreds of thousands or millions of them. These are indiscriminate weapons. They explode before they hit the surface. Pellets, fragments go everywhere. They kill whatever they hit or they injure whatever they hit badly. So they're considered a war crime or a crime against humanity. The US just sent a whole bunch of them to Ukraine, by the way. But when the Israelis did that, the US media would say, The Israelis are engaged in a war against a terrorist entity called Hezbollah. And so even though the Israeli government is using weapons that can't be characterized as anything but terrorist weapons, like cluster bombs, that designation of Israel as a terrorist entity doesn't exist in the US media. So Americans are looking at this war as like good versus evil, Israel, a state trying to defend itself against terrorists. And when you look at the track record, the designation of who's a terrorist and who's not a terrorist is completely based on your, or the US government's political proclivities, who it wants to align with. Its allies are never terrorists and its enemies are always terrorists. And then you have the complete disregard of the killing of civilians. Matter of fact, the Biden administration and John Kirby, State Department spokesman, or Pentagon spokesman, I can't remember. He's one of these agency spokesmen. He's basically saying, Well, when it comes to the killing of civilians in Ukraine, that's terrible. He started to cry. He got all teary. You may have seen it. And when he was asked about all of these civilian deaths in Gaza, he was like, Well, that's war. That's war. You know, stuff happens. So we have this narrative in the United States that it's just good versus evil. And one of the things I think that you're saying and talking about that's so important is if you don't think of this as simply a war, between the great Americans and the great Israelis and the evil terrorists. but if you actually look at the issues of occupation mm-hmm. of course Gaza and the West Bank and parts of Syria Golan Heights and Egypt were all militarily seized by the Israelis in in June 1967. these areas became occupied then you know the Israeli government used terror tactics to seize this territory. And Gaza is still, the settlers were pulled out, but the occupation, obviously, of Gaza continues. So what's important here is if if Americans who are trying to learn about this thing and don't think of it simply as America's great, Israel's great, the other guys are just terrorists, but actually try to understand the underlying issues of occupation, of land, of apartheid, then you start to think more importantly about the military issue. Because if you think of Hezbollah not as a terrorist organization, but a principal part of Lebanese politics and considered to be sort of heroically resistant against a foreign country, Israel occupying and killing Lebanese people, then you're looking at, well, what is Hezbollah's military capacity? Does it have the ability to actually fight? And again, for Americans, they're not thinking about this, but you in Lebanon are thinking about this because, to the extent that Hezbollah or other resistance forces become stronger, it becomes something of a deterrent for additional Israeli aggression. And I'll finish with this, Rania. You're talking about the danger of a regional war. Israel, in fact, fears a regional war because of this enhanced capacity from Hezbollah and the other resistance forces. When the Israelis thought they could do it, they wanted regional war. That was 1967. They wanted a regional war. They invaded Syria. They invaded Egypt. They invaded Jordan. This is when all of these territories became occupied. And so we're seeing a change in the relationship of forces. Mm -hmm. And again, you'll never get this from the mainstream media, everybody. Nobody's actually providing this analysis, the politics, the assessment, and also the military assessment that Rania is providing here on this program. Again, this is all important because what comes next? Does the destruction of Gaza lead to a, a big invasion by Israel? Does it lead to a wider war? What does a regional war look like? Not in 1967, but in 2023, the stakes here, in fact, could not be higher. Go ahead.:
1: I know, I'm so happy you said that because sometimes I do, because I live in Lebanon, I do forget that not everybody is aware of the sort of insider nature of how all this works. But yes, I'm really glad you noted that about Hezbollah, because, you know Hezbollah emerged out of the '80s when Israel was occupying a huge chunks of Lebanon. And I mean when I say occupation, I mean, they ran torture facilities and prisons. Their soldiers were on the ground here. And the reason the Israelis no longer occupy Lebanon is because of the emergence of Hezbollah, which liberated South Lebanon in 2000. That was a huge deal. After like half a century of Arabs losing land to Israel, this was the first time it was finally liberated from a settler occupying power. And after that, there was this war in 2006, and the Israelis were not able to invade. Hezbollah pushed them out and gave them a bloody nose. Hezbollah is far stronger today than it was in 2006. Hezbollah actually spent a very, very long time, years after 2011, after it entered the war in Syria in 2013, fighting ISIS and various Al-Qaeda groups that were being funded and armed by the United States and its Gulf state allies to try to overthrow the Syrian government. These groups became a huge threat to Lebanon. They were actually entering Lebanon and Hezbollah defeated them and protected Lebanon. From what happened in Syria, from these groups entering and taking over areas. They actually did enter parts of Lebanon and take over the areas and threaten minority communities. I mean, there's Christian villages that were fighting alongside Hezbollah and were thankful to Hezbollah for saving them from these Al-Qaeda groups that the US was arming. And by the way, Israel also, especially in the Golan Heights, was supporting these groups on the Syrian side. You know, Israel occupies the Golan Heights. More land it stole from one of its neighbors. So you have the settler colonial power that is now faced, like you said, and, and this is why I think the military aspect of this is so important. I mean, what we're seeing on our, our social media feeds is horrific. We're seeing video after video of cut up children, of parents chaotically running through the streets, holding bags of their mutilated children's bodies, of you know mothers having to write their children's names on their kids' limbs in case they're killed. It's you know almost 4,000 dead children that we know of, so many of them babies, literally babies, being just deliberately massacred by the Israelis. But take a step back for a moment. This is the most powerful military in the region. They are nuclear-armed, they have all of the best weapons constantly furnished to them by the United States of America, and they're unable to defeat a guerrilla force that is stationed inside a death camp. That says a lot. So how on earth are the Israelis? who can't even defeat Hamas, going to manage to take on Hezbollah to the north, which is a totally different ballgame, right? Hezbollah isn't in a death camp. They're in a country. They have a whole country. They have supply lines. The Israelis don't control all the borders. They can certainly put a siege on Lebanon. They still don't control all the borders. It's a very different situation, a very different terrain. Um, And then you also have all of these groups in Iraq and Syria, and then you have Iran. And they're literally saying... We there will be consequences if you continue doing this, which, again, is why the Israelis can't do what they did, like you mentioned, decades ago and just invade and bomb everyone. So I, I think it's really important to understand and recognize that because also a lot of the carnage is meant to defeat people psychologically, is, is really meant to defeat people psychologically and terrify them. You even see, if you look past a lot of like the mainstream uh, media and the way they're covering this, like I saw a headline in the Financial Times that compared... Hamas to the Viet Cong, which I thought was a really honorable comparison <laughs> in many ways, because the Viet Cong was quite successful in many ways, defeating a far superior power in the United States. But the point is, you know, it's really important to recognize that the Israelis aren't advancing militarily and that they think that this can go on for months. And I'm not sure that, that it's going to be that simple for them. And then there's also huge regional shifts taking place that we can talk about as well.
0: Yeah, I can remember as a kid when the United States government was telling the people of the world, we had to go to war in Vietnam because the Viet Cong were terrible terrorists. Matter of fact, you can go back and get headlines, Viet Cong, that's the derogatory name for the National Liberation Front. And the US was saying, well, this ragtag terrorist entity, they're terrorizing the people of South Vietnam, but we have superior weapons and we're going to destroy them. Just hang in there and we'll destroy them." And it went on and on, and eventually it was quite clear that there was no way the US could actually defeat the Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front. US soldiers, basic, every soldier who went into South Vietnam, their main goal was to go home. Their main goal was like, my tour of duty will end in 12 months. I hope I have both legs. I hope I have both arms. I hope I can hear. I hope I have both eyes. I want to go home. And the Vietnamese fighter, the so called terrorists, they were home. They weren't going anywhere. And so ultimately, this psychology of the war, where one side wants to go home and just end the war, and the other side wants to actually keep fighting because otherwise they live under occupation, which is what the Vietnamese were living under. So, you know, there's a lot of unlearned lessons by empire and by arrogant governments that have the most advanced weapons, who think that weapons themselves are the determiners of military outcomes. They're the ones that determine who wins and who loses. But in wars where one side is living under occupation and the other side, soldiers actually just want to party, or just go home, go to work, be with their families. They don't want to be fighting. They might enjoy the fruits of occupation, but they don't actually want to fight for it. That tilts the balance. That's a factor in the military equation. And I think that what you're saying is so important that, you know, when we look at Gaza, people here, especially again, uninformed Americans, that's most of us, right? Most people in the United States don't really know very much about this. And they're looking at, they say, well, there's no way Israel can lose. It's horrific what Israel's doing, but there's no way they can actually lose because they're destroying everything in Gaza, and there's no way out, there's no place to hide, so to speak. But there are tunnels, there are military forces, and it's not clear at all that the Israelis have succeeded militarily at, quote, defeating Hamas, crushing Hamas, and that's the stated goal now. The Israelis have said, we're gonna fight until Hamas no longer exists. And the Biden administration, not having learned the lesson of Vietnam, is agreeing with them. Now, if the Palestinian people are living under occupation, and let's just assume for a second that you destroy Hamas, it's gone. You kill every Hamas cadre, every Hamas leader. But the people are still living under occupation, there would be another formation of resistance because people won't want to live under occupation. And I want to remind, especially the U.S. government, for instance, you said this about the Ba'athist government in Iraq in 2003. You said you're going to destroy the Ba'athist government. You're going to liquidate Saddam Hussein, going to destroy it. And the U.S. did destroy the Ba'athist government. And what happened? You had the formation of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Iraq destroying Hamas actually would accomplish nothing because there would be some new iteration of resistance as long as occupation goes on. But the reality is they're not going to destroy Hamas. And if they actually go in and try to do militarily in Gaza, the likelihood is that Hezbollah and the other parts of the Middle East resistance will in fact enter the war. So this is the paradox, the dilemma from which neither the Israeli government, Netanyahu, or the Biden administration can really escape.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's a really good point you made. What is Israel's ultimate goal? I mean, they say it's to eradicate Hamas, but like you said, you can't. You actually can't eradicate Hamas. There's a few things to unpack there. First of all, it's an ideology, right? And it's happening as a reaction to occupation. And it's not only Hamas that's fighting. It's all the Palestinian factions. Hamas is the strongest one but all of their military wings in Gaza are involved right now. And then who is Hamas? Are Hamas aliens that just landed in Gaza? No, they're Palestinians who are fighting occupation. They're the children of 2008 Operation Cast Lead that killed, I mean, at this point it seems like nothing because we're reaching almost 10,000 civilians killed in Gaza at this point. But I think that killed like over a thousand civilians And many, many, many children, like usual. Who do you think the people from 2008, what do do you think they did after that, after they lost their parents and they were orphaned? They probably joined Hamas. 2014, Operation Protective Edge. These names Israel comes up with. Another 2,000 people were killed. 500 of them were children, over 500 of them. What do you think those children who were orphaned in 2014 did? Do you think they decided to surrender Living in a concentration camp that's now been turned into a death camp, a lot of those kids probably joined Hamas or some other Palestinian military faction. You had a war in 2021 by the Israelis on Gaza. It was a little bit shorter, but it was just as devastating as the others. What do you think is going to happen to those kids? What do you think all of these people, all these kids we see on these videos who are running around searching for their parents or hugging their dead parents, who You know, some people are saying, what is it, what's worse, to survive or to be killed? It might be better to be killed because it's just an apocalypse in Gaza. What do you think those kids are going to do? You think they're just going to give up after they've been traumatized for life? Or might they want vengeance? Might they want liberation? Might they want freedom and now have a reason to fight even harder for it? I mean, it's just so stupid to suggest that you can eradicate Hamas. Israel, no matter how much it destroys Gaza, Hamas will still exist, which means Israel can't win. This is why, you know, you probably saw this video going around of Hillary Clinton saying a ceasefire would be a gift to Hamas, so we can't have a ceasefire. You have all of these American officials and senators and Congress people refusing to back a ceasefire because Israel can't win with a ceasefire. A ceasefire would mean a defeat for Israel. That's the parameters that Israel's laid out for itself. So, militarily, there's nothing Israel can do, but just kill, 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 and eventually lose. I mean, that doesn't mean that anybody really wins, but Israel cannot win. That's the position it's put itself in.
0: Yeah. And again, it's, it requires from the people of the United States more knowledge, more understanding of the underlying issues because the media spoon feeds people propaganda before the Iraq first Gulf War. And I was one of the organizers of the big protests against the first Gulf War in the second war in 2003. But parts of the American population fervently believed before the first Gulf War that Iraqi soldiers went into Kuwait city and ripped babies out of incubators, throwing these early born children who will die otherwise if they're not in incubators, just throwing them on the, on the ground so that the Iraqis could take the incubators back to Baghdad. And so that was a deliberately planted propaganda piece by intelligence services and the Kuwaiti government, and embraced by the US government and embraced by the US media. And it was in the same loop, you know, the B-roll that people see on this show, the same loop of Iraqis took these babies and tossed them onto the floor and stole the incubators. So Anybody who had a a decent sort of humanitarian bone in their body would say, Well, we gotta we have to strike the Iraqis because these people are monsters. And then it turned out not to be true. Mm -hmm. Well, in the case of October 7th, what happened when Hamas took the military initiative? Civilians were killed, and we saw at least bodies under tarps. And and the presentation was these terrorists came and they just slaughtered. Civilians, because they're anti Semites. The issue of occupation dropped out, the issue of apartheid. These were violent terrorist anti Semites carrying out a pogrom against Jews, similar to what the Nazis did when the Nazis had state power in one of the biggest military machines ever, you know, between 1933 and 1945. Now, any human being who Looks at a a dead person who's a civilian, you're gonna feel sad. If you hear about the death of a child, doesn't matter if the child is Israeli, Palestinian, just the human reaction to that image makes you feel compassion for the victim. And in the war, there are victims, and the civilians do matter. But what happened with the US media presentation was only the Israeli civilians who died mattered. Yeah, And all of the death and destruction that's happening, not simply since October 7th, but has been happening for the last many decades against the Palestinian people, including mostly civilians, mostly children. There's not a Palestinian army per se. Hamas has developed a guerrilla force now, but there's no Palestinian army. So when you're at war with Palestine, you're at war basically with civilians. In Gaza, half the people are under the age of 18. That means half the population are children. So you're just inherently at war against civilians. And it doesn't matter to the American media. Like you mentioned, the civilians, the children who are dying in such large numbers, in the American media, they died if they were Israelis they were killed mm-hmm. like that language shift actually matters for people like if you die that's sad if you somebody was killed then you have somebody to blame but if somebody just died there's kind of like nobody to blame and what is israel to do but to defend itself so you know we heard the same sort of superficial arguments but arguments that work well within a sort of a population that doesn't have information And again, for Americans, there is a reference point here. Like now, when because of the 1960s and 70s with the progressive social justice movements, we finally had a different narrative about Christopher Columbus. We finally had a different narrative about the wars that were waged against indigenous people, the Indians in America. When I was a kid, we grew up on cowboy and Indian movies and the Indians were always described as savages, and the cowboys were always representing you know, civilization. I mean, that's what's going on. The American people are being spoon-fed the same sort of cowboys and Indians narrative about what's going on in Palestine, and not recognizing that the government that speaks in their name and spends their tax dollars is actually funding an occupation that makes resistance inevitable. It makes it inevitable. So if you want to stop the killing of civilians everywhere, which we all do, you have to stop the occupation, which means you have to stop the U.S. government from doing what it's doing, which is funding all of this. You know, Rania, we're going to have the biggest demonstration, I believe, in the history of the United States for Palestine this Saturday, November 4th in Washington, D.C. It's going to be bigger than anything that's ever happened. It's going to be truly historic. Finally, the American people or a bigger section of them, at least are, you know, because they're getting access to alternative news, because the Palestinian and Arab and Muslim communities exist and provide a human face instead of this caricatured face of who the people of the Middle East are. Things are changing. So when you look at the big picture, you see political support from Israel is evaporating. It's going. It's not coming back. This is a sea change. The military situation inside of Gaza, as you say, they can't really destroy Hamas. And then the regional allies of the Palestinian people are militarily stronger than they were four decades ago. So if we try to get the big picture and sort of think about where this is all going, you can kind of see that the days of apartheid are numbered. The Israeli Zionist presentation is, do you want to kill Jews or Do you wanna let Jews live? That's kind of the presentation. Where the other way to look at it is, do you wanna have apartheid? Do you wanna have an exclusivist apartheid regime? Or do you wanna have a democratic government where Muslim, Christian, Jew, non-believer, people, humans, part of the human family can live in a democratic society? I mean, I think the presentation here, when you put it all together, those are the two choices.
1: Those are the two choices. And, you know, the longer the U.S. continues to support the Israeli government in its current form, the more difficult and bloody it's going to be to get to what you just mentioned, which is the nicer version of that. Because, you know, one thing that I've noticed that Hamas has been doing in a lot of its statements is they're referring to Israel as a fascist state. And it's increasingly looking that way. And it's been on that trajectory. People have been warning about that for the last 20 years, that Israel has been becoming increasingly more and more extremist, fanatically far right, and I mean religious fascist far right. And, you know, one thing that I think is incredible about the American media, I'm not surprised, but it's still incredible that they have done zero, zero reporting on the fact that on October 7th, Israel was killing its own people. The Israelis were putting in place what looks like the Israelis were putting in place the Hannibal Directive, which is a known Israeli military directive to basically kill its soldiers rather than allow them to be taken hostage to prevent any leverage for the other side to have in negotiating prisoner releases. So they would rather kill their own people than have them taken hostage. And this seems to have been implemented against civilians. There's Israeli civilian testimony that the Electronic Intifada has reported on and Mondo Weiss has reported on essentially saying as much that's been exposed in some Israeli media where they're saying, no, our side was the one that was shooting at us. People were dying in crossfire. And none of that has been interrogated whatsoever. So when you mention the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter lying in front of Congress about babies and in incubators to justify the first Gulf War in the early 90s, you're, see, you're hearing a lot of crazy, unsubstantiated, evidence-free claims about what happened on October 7th. Meanwhile, you know, Palestinians are questioned for dying. We're like you have Biden and John Kirby literally getting up in front of cameras and mocking Palestinians, saying we can't trust your death toll. It's disgusting and it's racist and it's just completely. And people aren't going to forget this. Arabs and Muslims in America are not going to forget this when it comes to decide who to vote for next year. And I'm shocked that Joe Biden is going to self destruct. The way he is to back israel's genocide in gaza but then the question becomes why right like why be so enthusiastic for this disgusting horrific genocidal onslaught in gaza and there's a lot of reasons i don't think there's one you know there's the fact that Israel's is like you know the sort of sphere of imperialism in the middle east it polices the middle east for the americans and the europeans that's one you know you have this massive lobbying apparatus in the u.s when it comes to the way that politics works, that we're very well aware of, you know that's another one, you could come up with all kinds of reasons. There's also an actual affinity by a certain generation of American politicians for the State of Israel as well. Like I think that you know the sort of boomers um, in the American government really do believe Israel's is like a perfect, wonderful moral state. that's like a light of civilization. But you know, if you also think about what happened on October 7th, it really shook the world. Like it's changed the world. This is a real turning point in history. Because what you had was a group of indigenous people carrying out a just in military terms, carrying out a pretty successful military operation against their settler colonial occupier. And if you're Joe Biden or Ursula von der Leyen or Justin Trudeau or Emmanuel Macron, and you're lead, you know, you're a leader in one of these either European you know, imperialist countries or the sort of like settler colonies of Europe, you know, Australia, America, Canada, whatever. If you're one of these people, that's scary. That's really scary. You have a bunch of indigenous brown people shooting at the garden. You have the jungle people, Brian, shot at the garden. And they, they exacted a lot of casualties when they shot at the garden. And that that can't be tolerated. That cannot be tolerated. So in a way, you have the imperialists responding by crushing Gaza as a part of this like genocidal fantasy they have against the Global South, but also I think to send a message to people in the Global South. This is what happens to you if you fight back against our rotten, colonial, imperialist, capitalist system that's in decay right now. You know, this is a performance, I think, for the rest of the Global South. A literal vengeance exacted against people who got in the way of the settler colonial, you know, European project in the Middle East, got in the way of Ursula von der Leyen and Joe Biden's plans for Saudi normalization, got in the way against trying to replace Russian gas with other gas, you know, using Israel's gas, for example. This is really like a warning also, I think, not just to the people of the global South, but look what they're doing to their own populations in these countries. The repressive measures being put in place in Germany to ban protests, talking about banning the Palestinian flag in the UK, the entire UK corporate media apparatus referring to pro-Palestine protests, even led by Jews as pro-Hamas and anti-Semitic, What you have happening in France as well. You know, you see protesters like being beaten and rallies being banned And then in the U.S., you have this resolution, or I'm not sure, bill before Congress, trying to basically justify surveilling pro-Palestinian campus groups under the guise of, of the material support for terrorism clause that the U.S. uses to spy on people and to repress activity. I mean, that's a serious thing to be accusing college students of material support for terrorism. So, the, why do they have to do this? They have to do this because they've lost the narrative war in their own countries. So you see these repressive measures being enforced internally as well. I really think, Brian, that this speaks to a serious decay inside, you know, the capitalist system in the global north. And it requires it's almost like the scale of October 7th and what it meant was so big. It requires a genocide to try to overturn it.
0: Very important points, Ranya. You know, the Palestinian people in Gaza engaged in nonviolent protests in 2018. Every Friday, they went to the wall where the Israelis won't let people from Gaza leave. They had what was called the Great March of Return. So they had nonviolent protests, and the Israeli snipers shot them, shot and killed hundreds of people, thousands of people, but killed hundreds killed journalists, killed medics, deliberate targeting of individuals, people who clearly had Red Cross or Red Crescent symbolism on their body so that they would be seen as medics or people who had press credentials prominently displayed, they were shot and killed. So the Israelis made nonviolent protest basically impossible because if you go every week, to the wall and have a, a peaceful protest and you get shot down, eventually people are going to stop doing that. And when a government shuts down the road for peaceful, nonviolent protest, it makes armed resistance basically inevitable. In many ways, the United States having the First Amendment, it's kind of a safety valve to make sure that armed struggle groups don't form. And of course, the First Amendment is always being attacked even by people who In the establishment who say they love it and like it and makes American great. But that said, you know, that's what happened to the Palestinians. They tried nonviolent, peaceful means. Now, let's go back to the point you're making about Americans who are engaged in solidarity. In maybe half the states of the country, it's illegal to support the boycott, divest, and sanctions movement for Israel, meaning due to Israel, to the apartheid government in in Israel, what the worldwide progressive social justice movement did to the South African racist fascist apartheid regime in South Africa in the 80s, boycott, divest, and sanction. Don't buy stuff from them. Isolate them economically. And half the states in the country have laws which makes it illegal. Abby Martin, filmmaker, journalist, our friend had her conference speech canceled in Georgia because she refused to sign a thing saying, I will not boycott, divest, or advocate boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. She sued them. But this is half the states in the country. And the legislators who are writing these laws, making it illegal to protest peacefully against Israel, they're being joined by officials from the Israeli government who sit with them and help write the laws. For, like, state legislatures. So, if you make protest impossible in Gaza, if you criminalize dissent in the United States, then obviously the whole issue of how do you get justice includes the issue in the case of Gaza of possible armed struggle. Mm -hmm. That's what October 7th was an expression of that. And then once the armed struggle starts, The focus is on the people who engaged in armed struggle. You characterize them, demonize them as only terrorists. They're evil and they're fighting good. So then the whole process of how this came to be, October 7th came to be, is ignored. So you're making the point that October 7th, in some ways, is a turning point, which doesn't mean we're celebrating killing civilians. On the contrary, who isn't horrified by the death of civilians. But if it is in fact objectively a turning point, then what happens next matters. We have a clear signal from the Israeli government and from the Biden administration about what they think the next thing should be. And it should be endless intensifying criminal war against the people of Gaza. That's their message. Joe Biden is on record saying, no, this isn't the time for a ceasefire. The Israelis have rejected a ceasefire. They've called it a despicable act by those in the UN who advocated for a ceasefire. Biden obviously doesn't want a ceasefire in Ukraine either. You know, if that's your message to the people of the United States and the people of the world, our message is no ceasefire. Our solution is no ceasefire. Keep fighting. Keep the bombs coming. And by the way, the military contractors, they're making their stocks are going through the roof. They're very happy. Mm-hmm. I was reading some of the messages from CEOs of weapons manufacturers to their investors. They're saying, "Well, they use kind of euphemistic language, but they're basically so happy about what's going on because there're going to be more arms shipments, more profits for them. It's good business." And I say to the people of the world and people in the United States, and of course, a, big, a very big part of the Jewish community is now on record out in the streets having militant protests, demanding a ceasefire, saying Biden doesn't speak for us. He doesn't speak for this part of the Jewish community. When you look at the whole program of Biden and the Israelis, that's not a program that people of the world want. They don't want endless war. They want the ceasefire. But more than the ceasefire, they want justice. They want the underlying cause of the conflict, the thing that started October 7th, to be remedied, and the only remedy is to end occupation and to end apartheid. The problem of war isn't simply the absence of peace, it's the absence of justice, because the absence of justice makes conflict almost inevitable. With all that said, Rania, I'm going to give you the last word. Again, here in the US, we're on the eve of the biggest protest, November 4th in history for Palestine and the protests have been going on every day in every city. But we have entered, as you put it, a new period. And it's up to us, the people of the world, not just the people in Gaza, but us. What do we do? What kind of a difference can we make to find a path that takes us to justice?
1: Yeah, I'm so happy that there's so many people who plan to be attending November 4th. I hope anybody who can get there gets there. It's so important for these governments and these supposedly Western democratic countries to see that internally people do not want this. And polls show it. Polls show exactly what you're saying. The majority of Americans want to see a ceasefire. Joe Biden is completely out of step, not just with the majority of Americans, but also like the overwhelming majority of his own party. And I would also add, this is reaching incredibly dangerous territory, if it wasn't already dangerous enough, right? You have Gaza just being completely, relentlessly crushed and destroyed with genocidal, fanatical Israeli government officials telling us exactly what they wanna do there, and they're doing it. And that's gonna continue if we don't stop this. Moreover, this is going to escalate across the region if this isn't stopped. This is going to escalate to Lebanon. It's going to escalate To Syria, which is already dealing with so much. It's going to escalate to Iraq. It's going to reverberate in a very disastrous, catastrophic way across this region. It is going to light the Middle East on fire. It's going to cause a regional destructive war that really, I think, will be more dangerous than what we see in Ukraine because of of how much it can snowball into catastrophe. And you will see the Americans be forced to get further and further involved. We already have have several aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean coming to show force against Iran and to resupply the Israelis. You already have America sending more troops to the region. This is a scary, dangerous moment. We need to put a stop to what's happening in Gaza to prevent the entire region from exploding.
0: Rania Kalik, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 PM Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.